Welcome to the Kindling's Muse podcast, an intelligent, imaginative, hospitable exploration of ideas that matter in contemporary life. And now, here's your host, Dick Staub. Welcome to uh, the Kindling's Muse at Earl Palmer Ministries, and uh, for those of you that don't know, this event is taped for podcasts in front of a live audience at Kane Hall on the campus of the University of Washington. Each month, Reverend Earl Palmer selects a book every thoughtful person ought to read. Uh, it begins with some opening comments, followed by a conversation with me, and then we open it up to our esteemed elite office, uh, audience who is at the ready with some good questions, I'm sure. Uh, tonight, our subject is Alexander Hamilton, a patriot and a Christian. Uh, it's based on the book by Ron Chernow, Hamilton, which is an absolutely fabulous book. And particularly if you love biographies, this is one you've got to read. But even if you don't, this, this really gets at some important stuff about the founders of our country and some of the most interesting elements that will help you understand uh, what was going on in those days. Of course, we're also inspired by the Broadway play Hamilton, an American musical, and Earl Palmer actually with Shirley went and saw that on Broadway, along with Tony down here in the front row, and, and uh, they left me behind in Princeton and went in and saw it, and I want to thank you for not taking me. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but that is another amazing piece of work, music, lyrics, and book by Lin-Manuel Miranda. You know, Theodore Roosevelt called Hamilton the most brilliant American statesman who ever lived, possessing the loftiest and keenest intellect of his time. Sounds like it's going to be good. Here to introduce us to the subject, will you join me in giving a big round of applause to Earl Palmer? Well, it is uh, built upon this uh, biography. I love biographies. And is, by the way, it's an interesting thing that Ron Chernow, who also wrote a great biography of George Washington, uh, in writing this on Hamilton, in Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda, said, says that it was this biography that inspired him to create the musical uh, Hamilton. And uh, so that's a, quite a tribute to a biographer, that, uh, that you write a biography about a great man, and then uh, Lin-Manuel Literally, uh, it, it totally changed his life. And that musical has changed American mu musical uh, hi history, too, as far as mu musicals on Broadway. Uh, I want to trace the life of this man and, and try to look at markers. Now, I'm very interested in, the, first, the markers of his early life so that you can get a, a, a picture of this, uh, of this man and where he came from. And also, though, markers of, of his brilliance and gift as a patriot. I titled this American Patriot and Christian. And then I also, since I'm a pastor and I'm very interested in the Christian uh, aspect of this man's life, and uh, he's a complicated man, and I do want to spend, uh, uh, divide my time with those two great f focuses. First, the uh, markers uh, of the man himself, and his role as a patriot, and then, of course, the, the, the Christian markers that I find throughout this book. And I'm grateful to Chernoff that he has in no way flinched or endeavored to soften. He's kept all that alive, which is what is great in a great biography. 
Uh, first, uh, Alexander Hamilton was born uh, in a, and by the way, we did produce a, a sheet with a lot of these details, so you don't have to worry about taking notes on those details, because I'm just going to sketch them in, and you can, when you came in, I hope everybody got that, that sheet that tells the story of his life. But he was born in the, what would the, the British would call the, the West Indies, and in the little island of Navis. And Navis was famous or infamous as one of the three main islands in the British West Indies that received slaves in the slave trade that were brought from Africa and then were auctioned there and sold to American slaveholders in the United States. And as a matter of fact, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, brought his slave ship when he was a slave uh, uh, captain and brought it into Nevis, this island, and, and St. Croix. That were two places where Alexander Hamilton lived. So that's this sort of tragic island where he was born. He, uh, his mother was a remarkable and great woman, uh, Rachel Fosse. She was actually a French Huguenot. That means a French Protestant living there with her mother at the time uh, and came to uh, uh, live in St. Croix. And her, uh, unfortunately, she married a, a very bad man uh, when she was 16 years old. His name was Jan Lavin. He was uh, a Danish man and uh, a, a tradesman. He was cruel and... Uh, uh, a vicious man, and here she bears him one son, and then he, uh, he believes she's an adulteress and makes, uh, does some uh, things that, that he feels are improper. And in those days, uh, a, a husband could have his wife imprisoned for adultery. And so Rachel Fosse is imprisoned by her husband for three months in a cruel and a horrible prison in St. Croix. And then when she comes out, he assumes she'll be very obedient now. Instead, she flees for her life and flees uh, from him, goes to find with her mother in uh, St. Kitt, and then finally to Navis. And he, of course, is outraged and gets vengeance on her uh, and, and divorces her. And then later, actually, uh, when he does the divorce, by then she's got two children. She goes and meets her mother, and then she meets a young Scottish man named uh, James Hamilton. James Hamilton comes from a Scottish family. He's the black sheep of his family, and he mar they, they can't get married. They try to get married, but because she is divorced or separated from her husband, he, he does divorce her when Alexander Hamilton is four years old. But she can't get married by the Church of England there in that island because it's, it's an English island. And so they live together, and they have two children, the youngest being Alexander. And when he's four years old, uh, then the official decree of divorce comes, which is then pr uh, put on the public record. And in Levin, when he... Uh, place that on the public record, which, of course, later in the, in the colonies, people that were maybe especially those that were enemies of Alexander Hamilton were able to look up these records and realize that when Levin divorced her, he divorced his wife and said she is a whore with two boys, two sons, sons of a whore.
That's what he said in the official document uh, in divorcing her. But uh, she, had already, she was living with uh, James Hamilton. And then when, uh, when uh, Alexander Hamilton is four years old, his father abandons. I mean, talk about a tragic beginning for a boy. The father abandons uh, his two sons, the older son and the younger son, Alexander, was only four years old, and, uh, and then just flees. And we have no more, we never hear from him again. It's ironic. Later, when Alexander Hamilton is a famous man, the Hamilton family in Scotland will write a letter saying, we so want to get to know you. And, what do you, and it turns out they were just trying to get money from him. I mean, now that doesn't speak very well for that Scottish family. They, it turns out, and Alexander Hamilton was very gracious to them and wrote them letters and actually arranged for one of their sons to become a, a seaman in the Navy. But it turns out all he wanted was money from Alexander Hamilton. They, but the father, uh, James, vanished. He had no part in his life. Now that leads it up to Rachel. And Rachel uh, now has to homeschool because the Anglican church school begin of the strictness of the British rules, cannot take these two boys in school because, again, they are sons of a whore, and they have no standing. They're illegitimate children, so they can't be in the, in the school because the school has these rules. It's got to be from families that are intact. And so she has to really raise these boys herself. There's one interesting vignette, though, that comes out of that. She raises the, the boys, and especially Alexander, uh, by hiring a Sephardic Jew, Jewish woman from Brazil, who is an immigrant living there on the island, herself an immigrant, fleeing the persecution herself. And she raises and teaches young Alexander and teaches him in Hebrew to recite the Ten Commandments and, and uh, along with his, the mother who is very brilliant, uh, trying to uh, raise her son. And the interesting upshot of all that is that later on, the, the result in Alexander Hamilton's life is he had a great love for Jewish people from then on. As you'll see also, he's extremely anti-slavery. And one of the only founding fathers that was totally anti-slavery. But he also was very pro-Jewish. And when he later became a famous lawyer in New York City, he was in a case where the uh, a witness was a Jewish witness and the uh, the other lawyer says, you can't believe Jewish witnesses. You know, Jews are noted for being liars, so you can't, you can't believe them. And Alexander Hamilton said this, why distrust the evidence of Jews? Discredit them and you destroy the Christian religion. Were not the Jews the witnesses of that pure and holy, happy and heaven-approved faith and were not they converts to that faith? In other words, the first Christians were Jews. And so that's a great speech by Alexander Hamilton when he was later a famous lawyer in favor of the Jews. So you have this amazing man with this uh, background from the, the, the uh, prejudice of the island, and, but this wonderful mother. But it doesn't last. Uh, his mother finally decides to move to St. Croix, uh, and they, they get a house there, and when, uh, when Alexander is, Hamilton is 10 years old, she gets stricken with a very, very severe and fatal illness, uh, fever. 
He is in bed with her with that fever. He almost dies himself. And will from then on have frail health. A little bit like Winston Churchill had frail health, and yet it became such a, a, a powerful figure later. And uh, that's interesting similarity. But he was also stricken with the same fever and almost died. And she died in the bed right alongside of him. And he is now 10 years old. That is, uh, and so he and his brother are made orphans. And they have no inheritance whatsoever because all the inheritance that should have been theirs from the Fawcett family was really stolen by other members of the Fawcett family. And they didn't do anything for him. So then these two boys have to fend for themselves. Imagine this background. And oh, by the way, here's an interesting aside. Uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, doesn't, uh, he cannot stand to be uh, disrespected. And he hates anyone who's disrespected. And the, it, it shows up in this uh, part of his life in that when his mother died, this 10-year-old boy and his older brother, who's uh, 14 years old, they can't get her buried in the church cemetery because she is a whore. She is not uh, right. She's not married. And so he never forgave the church for that. And that's why he never joined any church, though he stayed a Christian and he becomes a very strong Christian later in his life. But he doesn't join any church uh, until the very end of his life when he uh, when he joins the Trinity Church in order to get uh, the Lord's Supper as he's dying after a duel. But imagine they, they wouldn't bury his mother. And so the two boys have that on, on their back as well. Uh, but then good things begin to happen. This story is sound like such a grim reaper story at this point. But good things begin to happen. This boy, Alexander, is brilliant. He is literary. His, and that's be, we owe that debt to his mother and to that Jewish Sephardic teacher who taught him he knew Latin and Greek already as a boy. And he was, his French was absolutely fluent because of his mother. In fact... Cherno makes an interesting point that, you know, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams all went to France to negotiate with the French, but their French was all stumbling. Alexander Hamilton spoke fluent French and knew it perfectly, and it gave him a great advantage over the other founding fathers in relating to the French, which is interesting. But he got that from his mother, and then now he's literate, so he's working as a clerk in a mercantile place. And then when he's 16 years old, so now you have all those years with him growing up in St. Croix, uh, uh, outraged at what he sees in the slave market and the cruelty of the slave market and seeing all this in which he becomes totally uh, poisoned against slavery. And then, but the good thing is he has two good things that happen in his life. He meets a Presbyterian minister named Hugh Knox. I'm so glad for the attention that Chernow makes uh, with, uh, with regard to Hugh Knox. Hugh Knox is a Princeton man. He went to Princeton Seminary. And he wanted very much to see uh, this young man go to, it was called then the College of New Jersey. He wanted him to go to that College of New Jersey because that's where Hugh Knox went. And Hugh Knox became, becomes a very major influence in young uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton's life when he show, goes up to New York.
because he knows everybody and he knows many prestigious people, especially in the Presbyterian circles, not the Episcopal circles. But uh, the other uh, thing that happens is he meets a family and the Stevens family are very wealthy and they took a great interest in him. And in fact, their son becomes the lifelong best friend of Alexander Hamilton. And that family meets Alexander uh, while he's really a waif and an orphan. And then an amazing thing happens. I put it in, the, in your paper. There was a hurricane, uh, and it was, it was the hurricane of, uh, I've got the date down of that hurricane. You don't keep track of hurricane dates. But anyway, the hurricane of August 31, 1772. Alexander Hamilton, who's uh, 16 years old, but his friend Hugh Knox, the Presbyterian pastor, a very humble Presbyterian pastor, but he was in connection with a gazette called the Danish Gazette. Uh, and so he asked Alexander to write an article on the hurricane because he knew he was literate. And so he did. He wrote an article on the hurricane. It, it, it becomes a very good thing for Alexander Hamilton's life because when he writes this article, and by the way, when, they, uh, when he showed up to the... Uh, 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 the, the editor-in-chief, he lies a little bit. He'll lie several times about his age. Now, here he lies and says, I'm older. I'm about 17. Actually, he was only barely 16. But, you know, kids do that. The minute a kid turns 16, he'll say, oh, I'm 16 and a half. You know, nobody ever just says, I'm 16. So he says, I'm almost, I'm about 17. In order to let him get, make sure they'll, let, they'll publish what he writes, because uh, Hugh made the uh, introduction, but then he's got to get him to, to publish it. And then later on, when he goes to Princeton, he lowers his age because Princeton wanted younger men to come to seminary. So then he said, now I'm 16. And he goes, so he goes back in age. So he's a smart guy. But anyway, he writes about the hurricane. Let me read some of the things this 16-year-old boy wrote. It seems as if the total dissolution of nature was taking place. The roaring of the sea and wind, fiery meteors flying about in the air, the prodigious glare of almost perpetual lightning, the crash of the, following, of the falling houses, and the ear-piercing shrieks of the distress were sufficient to strike astonishment unto the angels. Sounds almost like what happened in the, in the Irma. And then he becomes a preacher. In the article he wrote for the Gazette, it swept Europe. This article was swept all over uh, because this Danish publication was picked up by all the European because of the hurricane. And he writes, so now he becomes a preacher. He says, where now, O vile worm, is all thy boasted fortitude and resolution? What is become of thine arrogance and self-sufficiency? Death comes rushing on in triumph, veiled in a mantle of tenfold darkness, his unrelenting sickle pointed and ready for the stroke. See thy wretched, helpless state. Now listen to him preaching now. See thy wretched and helpless state and learn to know thyself. Now he's a preacher to these people, the 16-year-old boy. Know yourself. Despise yourself and adore God. O ye who revel in affluence, 
see the afflictions of humanity. He's referring to the slaves that are right there that have suffered also in this terrible hurricane and have just been left without any help at all. See the afflictions of humanity and bestow your superfluity to ease them. Succor, that means help. Help the miserable and lay up a treasure in heaven. Now that is the young 16-year-old Alexander Hamilton. This created a sensation, so much so that the business people in, in San Croix created a fund to send this boy to America to get his college education and to be trained either as a doctor or a pastor. They didn't care which, but they wanted him trained. And so they created the San Croix Fund to send this boy who is an illegitimate kid, uh, no family. His mother couldn't even be buried in the cemetery, imagine. And an orphan, and to send him to New York to study. And so that is the beginning of a new chapter in his life. He goes to New York, and it's funny. In New York, in New York he, he, uh, he just hits it off marvelously. And when he gets, uh, when he gets to New York, uh, he, and he goes down to, because of Hugh uh, Knox, he goes down to the College of New Jersey, and he was very, very taken by John Witherspoon, who's the president of the College of New Jersey. If you, go to Princeton, if you go to Princeton University today and go in front of the chapel, you'll see a huge statue of John Witherspoon, one of the, the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence was John Witherspoon. He was terribly anti-slavery. He was completely against slavery. And so that fascinated young Alexander Hamilton. And he wanted to go to Princeton. And this is a terrible irony. I'm a Princetonian, so I, sat, I feel sad about this. He wanted to go so bad to Princeton, and then he'd become a pastor. But, uh, and John Witherspoon was totally enamored by him and wanted him to go. But the board of trustees said, no, you have to take two years here. And he wanted to do it in one year because he's terribly bright. And he wanted to do it in one year because he wanted to get on with his life. You know, he's, after all, he's, he's either 16 or 17, depending on where, what age he chooses to be. And he wants to get going. And, uh, and that's why he fudges and says he's a year earlier than he really was, hoping they'll take him in. Uh, but they, uh, they'd had bad experience with James Madison because he got a, had a nervous breakdown. And so they don't want anybody just to try to study in one year. And so James Madison had been a bad student, and they don't want to have that happen again. And so Witherspoon was overruled by the Board of Trustees. Beware, Board of Trustees. He was overruled. And so, so then Alexander Hamilton goes up to New York, and Hugh Knox was so sad because Hugh Knox is anti-British too. He goes up, because he's Scottish, he goes up to uh, New York and goes to college at King's College, which later became Columbia University. But he goes to King's College, which is a royalist school. And it's just the opposite of what John, what his mentor wanted him to do. He wanted him to go to Princeton, uh, the College of New Jersey, instead he goes to royal, a royal college that's pro-British in New York. See, New York was the most pro-British British part uh, during the period of the Revolution. And while he's there, he is taken by the uh, freedom fighters who are now just doing skirmishes. In fact, the Boston Tea Party takes place during that time when he's a student. 
And then you see something of the courage. He loves the freedom fighters. And they come down, but when they come down to New York, these freedom fighters decide they're going to try to kill Miles uh, 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 Cooper, who is the president of King's College. And young Alexander Hamilton, who is now only about 17 or 18 years old, he stands in front of the door where Cooper is. And by the way, Cooper does manage to sneak out and get to the uh, coast and get on a British warship and then goes back to England and spends the rest of the, the whole time in England. But he is the president of this college. And young Alexander Hamilton defends him against the mob. And it's, it's a tremendous mob that shows up. And he says, of all the incidents in Hamilton's early life in America, his spontaneous defense of Miles Cooper was probably the most telling. It showed that he could separate personal honor from political convictions because he's in favor of these freedom fighters that came down and were going to rough up and maybe even kill Miles Cooper. Uh, but he could draw a distinction. It showed he could separate personal honor from political convictions. And it, it presaged a recurring theme of his career, the superiority of forgiveness over revolutionary vengeance. Hamilton wanted nothing to do with vengeance. And later on, when he became pro-protecting the British, uh, from uh, certain Brits were r ridden on rails out of New York, uh, and he opposed that. And when he later had authority, he opposed that and wanted to. And so then he was accused of being pro-royalist, but he wasn't. He was a, very much a patriot. Uh, so Hamilton had shown exemplary courage. Beyond taking a terrible beating, he had taken the chance that he would sacrifice his heroic stature among the sons of liberty. That's what they were called then. But Hamilton always expressed himself frankly no matter what the consequences. Most of all, people captured the contradictory impulses struggling in the side, the complex young man. He was a committed revolutionary, and yet he had a profound dread of against dangerous excesses. He hated the mobs. And for that reason, this will help you understand why Jefferson was enamored with France, John Adams, to a lesser degree, enamored with France, and Alexander Hamilton was suspicious of France. And well, he should have been because later that revolution in France produced Napoleon Bonaparte, who almost attacked the United States. And so Alexander Hamilton did not like that French revolutionary spirit that burns everything. He didn't want that. So you see that early on. But while he's there, George Washington comes through in a parade. And that's his first vision of George Washington, just a young colonel in a parade. It's, uh, the Revolutionary War has not yet fully the, uh, happened, but the uh, battles up in New England have been happening. So he comes, and down in uh, the Continental Congress, uh, they swore in George Washington to become the uh, commander-in-chief. Uh, they called him sober, steady, and calm. He was 43 years old and he was named head of the Continental Arm Army. And, uh, and so 
and Alexander saw him and was very much taken by him. By the way, Hamilton uh, was five, five foot seven, and, Ale- and George Washington was seven inches taller than he was. So he was a considerably bigger man than Alexander Hamilton. But he was so impressed. So he decides to join the, the uh, Sons of Freedom and find out that you can do it if you can get your own army together, your own militia together. And so he does. With another man, he gets, uh, he gets uh, and forms an artillery captain. He becomes an artillery captain, and uh, he assumes the most paternal responsibility for the 68 men who eventually came under his command. Some of them were illiterate and entered marks instead of signatures uh, into the so-called paybook where Hamilton kept track of their food, clothing, pay, and discipline, and he used the money from the Croy, the Croy endowment that was sent to him to uh, go to school. He used that money to pay for this army. And they had several skirmishes where they had to face the British, and he uh, handled himself with great courage and won the respect of George Washington, who saw it, and because his army... Uh, by the way, Washington was losing every battle at that point, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War. And uh, so in January 20th of 1777, uh, uh, George Washington sent a personal note to Captain Alexander Hamilton, that's what they called him, for his little army he had, uh, of the New York Company of Artillery. And, uh, and then he asked him to be his aide-de-camp. And that, that means that now... Young Alexander is uh, uh, just 21 years old at this point, and he's made the aide-de-camp to George Washington. This brings up a very interesting uh, discussion of the relationship of these two men, which will dominate uh, his patriot part. The relationship between Washington and Hamilton was so consequential in early American history, it's rivaled only by the intense comradeship between Jefferson and Madison that it is difficult to conceive of their careers apart. The two men had complementary talents, values, and opinions that survived many strains over the 22 years they were together. This young man who joins Washington at age 21 is with him for 22 years under General George Washington. He loved George Washington. He also argued with them all the time, too, but he loved that man. And, uh, and when George Washington becomes president of the United States, as you know, uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton becomes secretary of treasury. He, he actually is the one who created West Point. He's the one who created the, the army and, and gave it its rules and regulations. And he was a terribly important influence. So I'll read what, what is said about the two. The two men had complementary talents, values, and opinions that survived many strains over 22 years together. Washington possessed the outstanding judgment, the sterling character, and a clear sense of purpose needed to guide his sometimes wayward protege. Uh, He saw that the volatile Hamilton needed a steadying hand. Hamilton, in turn, contributed philosophical depth administrative expertise, comprehensive policy knowledge that nobody in Washington's ambit ever matched. He could transmute wispy ideas into detailed plans and turn revolutionary dreams into enduring realities. 
As a team, they were unbeatable. And far more than that, they were far more than the sum of their parts. Here, I have to give you a little bit of information you may not know. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was called the pen in Washington's hand. Washington was not literate, not highly literate. He was self-taught. He didn't go to college, but he was a self-taught young man, and, uh, but brilliant, but self-taught, and he was very silent. In fact, Al, uh, George, uh, John Adams calls him the, the, uh, the, the, he had the gift of silence, was the gift of George Washington. Did you know that during the Continental Congress, when our Constitution was written, he is what managed that Constitutional Assembly, and he had strict rules. You could not take any piece of paper out of the meeting, and you could not bring any piece of paper into the meeting. And during the entire writing of our Constitution, as far as we know, George Washington said nothing, but he was there, his presence. His presence was amazing. The stature of George Washington is unbelievable. And, uh, and we got a great constitution out of it. But guess who was doing all the writing? All of the memoirs. Guess who wrote the, the farewell address of George Washington? Alexander Hamilton. George Washington asked him privately, would you write my, my remarks? And he did. And he's the one who uh, wrote all the memos and we have now voluminous memos by George Washington that are witty and brilliant to his command, to the Congress, reports on what was going on. It was all written by Alexander Hamilton. The pen of George Washington was Alexander Hamilton. He was so brilliant. He had such a great mind. And he understood. Uh, he had, well, of course, he created the Federalist Papers, and he understood that we needed to have of course, he, was, he had enemies, too. His big enemies would be the people that were in the Jefferson crowd that wanted uh, the states' rights and wanted the states to have a, a supreme power that could not be countermanded by the, the federal government. And it was, it was Alexander Hamilton who saw there had to be a strong federal government, and, and he masterminded that. As you know, the people after the Revolutionary War wanted, uh, wanted uh, some wanted to make uh, George Washington king, and almost all of them wanted to make him president for life. And it was George Washington who rejected that, he said, I don't want that, I'll take two terms, and then I want to retire, and he did. He's the only man in American history, in world history, that walked away from power, and he had all the power there was, was in the hands of George Washington. And the, one of the most moving moments, and it gives, it, again, it's a great moment between uh, Hamilton and Washington, is the moment, and uh, remember we did an evening on George Washington in Washington, D.C., and I made reference to this scene. It, after the Revolutionary War was over, the officers in his great army were in a rebellious mood, and they wanted to march on Congress and demand their pack, back pay and more pay. And they were, in, they were in a mood of mutiny. And these are the officers of the Revolutionary Army of George Washington. And George Washington is there with Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton is trying to give him advice. And Hamilton uh, is in the background working with Congress to try to get him to give money to the army because they realized that they needed to get their back pay. 
And so Alexander Hamilton is in the background working on getting Congress to give them their back pay. But George Washington decides not to even mention one thing about pay in this huge core of officers that, that met on March 15th in officer, and, uh, and they, were, they had this scheme to march on, on uh, Congress. And uh, Washington sternly rebuked talk of rebellion, saying it would threaten the liberties for which they had fought. An insurrection would only, and then here's a famous quote from Washington, would only open the floodgates of civil discord and deluge our rising empire in blood. And he said, I have no intention to be a part of any rising of blood. And, and then he even, and then he staged, the, every, everybody that is, is an American history buff knows that this is the greatest moment at a turning point in the American democracy is when George Washington, what they call it, he staged, he didn't stage it, it was just genuine, the most famous coup de theater and, uh, of his career. And Alexander Hamilton plays a part in that. Uh, he was about to read aloud a letter from congressmen. It was a letter written by Alexander Hamilton in his negotiations with Congress to get them to give salary, back salary, and he's about to read this letter. And, and George Washington, I, I almost break into tears hearing this. So he, uh, he was about to read a letter that would be from the congressman uh, when the words swam before his eyes. So he fished in his pockets for his glasses. And then he said this, gentlemen, he said, you will permit me to put on my spectacles for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service to my country. And all the soldiers walked away from that mutiny. Just the sheer presence of George Washington. But that note that had been written by Alexander Hamilton, handed to him, and then they did say, and by the way, Congress is going to give you your back pay. We don't know where they'll get the money, but they're going to do it. You know, uh, this gives you uh, insight into the role he played. He played a tremendous role in the framing of the American democracy. And when Washington became president, he uh, was uh, right alongside and was his most uh, major confidant though John Adams was technically vice president, but it was really Alexander Hamilton who was the power. And so when he finished those 20-some years and Washington retired, uh, before he retired, though, they created another army. The war is over now. We're, we're now a democracy. Uh, Hamilton, uh, I mean, uh, Adams is president, and they create the army again. And it was interesting, George Washington picked Alexander Hamilton to be the general, we called the Inspector General. Hamilton did not want to be called General, but he was called from then on General, General Hamilton. But Inspector General, he wanted a, a lower title than what Commander-in-Chief was what Hamilton had, uh, what Washington had. And so he was then made the general of the, the remaining army that was supposed to then defend America against the, well, against eventually Napoleon Bonaparte if he decided to attack or of the, Brit of the British. And at uh, any rate, uh, so he has that role. And 
we owe such a debt uh, to, uh, to the pen of George Washington, who was Alexander Hamilton. Now, uh, then he falls in love. He falls in love toward the end, before, uh, while he's still with uh, Washington as the, when Washington is the president of the United States, he falls in love with Eliza Schuler and her family, a Dutch Reformed Evangelical Christian. She's not Church of England. She's not uh, Anglican or Presbyterian. She was uh, Christian Reformed or Dutch Reformed. And she was a very devout woman and stayed devout all her life. She lived to be 97 years old. And the last years of her life spent as a missionary in Washington, D.C. with orphan children. The most amazing woman, Eliza. She came from an amazing family, too. And the musical brings this up in rather curious ways because her sisters were also gorgeous. And Alexander Hamilton not only loved Eliza, he loved the whole family. And maybe a little bit too much with regard to a couple of the sisters. But uh, his wife uh, understood Alexander Hamilton, and uh, she forgave him for uh, mistakes he did make of that, of that nature. But there are three, it seems to me, weaknesses in Alexander uh, Hamilton that you see throughout his career. And one was uh, his acute awareness of disrespect. Uh, and that kept him uh, away from the uh, Episcopal Church, the Church of England, uh, when they wouldn't uh, allow the burial of his mother. That sort of disrespect. And it, it also harmed his relationship with other founding fathers. Now, I've read uh, McCullough's book on John Adams, and I love it, except John Adams had, very, uh, had some bad traits as well. Uh, he delighted in pointing up the fact that Alexander Hamilton was an illegitimate boy. He was a bastard child. He used the harshest language to refer to Alexander Hamilton, and others did it as well. Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, they always reminded Hamilton of the fact that you have this disreputable background. And, uh, and it maybe led to a lot of his attacks on the other founding fathers. He has so much power, folks, because of, his, of the, uh, the fact that George Washington favored him and trusted him. But that then, in a way, backfires with the other founding fathers, especially John Adams, who uh, is very resentful of John uh, Alexander Hamilton, as was James Madison, James Monroe, those who later became president of the United States, and Thomas Jefferson. Though it's interesting, Thomas Jefferson is complicated because he did not like Thomas Jefferson. But yet, uh, when push came to shove, and there was a... Mix, the, the, the votes were equal between Aaron Burr, and who became uh, the main enemy of, uh, of uh, eventually of, of Alexander Hamilton. Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson had equal number of votes. And it was, it was Alexander Hamilton who swung the key votes in favor of Thomas Jefferson. Because he felt Thomas Jefferson was better suited to be president than Aaron Burr. And he was right. Thomas Jefferson was definitely better suited to be president than Aaron Burr. But that caused a great anger on the part of Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr is vice president then under Thomas Jefferson. But they hate each other. And then Thomas Jefferson, uh, later then when uh, Aaron Burr decides he wants to run for the governor of New York. 
and he blames Alexander Hamilton for, again, uh, attacking him during his attempt to run for New York. And that is what caused the duel. Uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, it w- it was reported to have said at a, at a dinner that uh, he did not feel that Aaron Burr had the character qualities needed to be the president of the United States, uh, to be the governor of the state of New York, and that he was, uh, uh, and he even, and then he, according to the text, he said, and there are even darker reasons. Now, maybe that was a mistake to say. There are even darker reasons why I don't think he should be the governor of New York. And that came back to Aaron Burr, and Aaron Burr says, you have disrespected me, I challenge you to a duel. And, you know, Alexander Hamilton did not believe in dueling, though as a boy he was fascinated with dueling on the island, on the West Indies because they had duels all the time. But he didn't believe in it. And the, the church did not believe in dueling. In fact, the Anglican Church and the Presbyterian Church both said that if you dueled and died, you could not have the services of the church for your funeral if you are dueling because it's so sinful to duel. But he was a man of honor, and his own son, Philip, and this brings us to a very important point, there was an escapade called the Reynolds Escapade where a man and his wife literally tricked uh, Alexander Hamilton, according to Chernow, tricked him into what he thought was this damsel in distress, uh, Mrs. Reynolds, whose husband was in cahoots with her because they then wanted to blackmail Alexander, the Great, Alexander Hamilton, who was very wealthy then, uh, for having uh, had a, an illicit affair with her. She, and she had featured herself as a woman in great distress. And Ale- Hamilton was an easy pushover for anybody in great distress. Now, that's, that's certainly no excuse. But at any rate, that's the famous Reynolds affair which got a lot of press, and everybody wrote articles about it, and it, it, it hurt him badly. And it hurt his wife. His wife was such a grand lady, but she stuck with him and realized that there was, that was a blackmail thing and everything was made it complicated. But uh, his son, uh, Philip, the oldest, he had eight children, his oldest son was uh, at, a, at a party, and there was a young man who was actually in the government, was at the party, and these boys, uh, the, the, the boys that were uh, n- not in Philip's group, the others were making fun of Alexander Hamilton and this Reynolds scandal. And, uh, and then when uh, young Philip comes up to them and, and they want to argue about it, they say, you rascals. <laughs> now that is evidently considered a very bad word. At the, uh, and they called them rascals. You rascals. Whereupon, young Philip then says, then I challenge you to a duel. And uh, so he tells his dad he's challenged a duel to protect his dad's honor. And his father, Alexander, says, uh, Hamilton says to your son, shoot your gun in the air. Whatever you do, shoot your gun in the air. And his, br- his son does it, but the other young man shoots to kill. And uh, when his son was killed, this is two years earlier than his own duel with Aaron Burr, uh, Chernow makes a very big point of the fact that that broke 
Alexander Hamilton's heart. And he then turns, uh, the way he puts it, he turns to religion or turns to his faith, but he really does. The last two years of his life, most of his writing are comments on the Bible and things that he's, uh, that he's written uh, for his wife. Here's one that's it's really touching. Uh, he, uh, he said, um, uh, he's, he's, just, he's defending the faith. And he says, uh, uh, he once consoled a friend in terms of the, that left no doubt of his overarching faith in the moral order. Arrange, uh, arign not the dispensations of providence. They must be founded in wisdom and goodness. And when they do not suit us, it must, because there's some fault in ourselves which deserves chastisement, or because there's some kind of intent to correct in us some vice or failing, which perhaps we're not conscious. And then he goes on to say, I have examined carefully the evidence of the Christian religion, he wrote to a friend, and if I was sitting in a jury upon its authenticity, I should rather abruptly give my verdict in its favor. To Elisa, he said of Christianity, I have studied it, and I can prove its truth as clearly as any proposition ever submitted to the mind of man. And, that, and then it tells how his son, uh, who was the first attempt to write a biography, his son John, they made the point that he, uh, during this period, he walked with Elisa in the woods and speaking to their children, and he suddenly turned to her and said in an enraptured voice, I may yet have 20 years, please God, I will one day build for them the chapel on, in this grove. He, he bought a grove, which uh, he, they used uh, for orphans and others, and then they had uh, Bible studies there in these last couple of years of his life. And then, of course, the uh, fateful day came when uh, the duel was called uh, with Aaron Burr, vice president of the United States at that time, running for governor of New York, and... Uh, and in that, uh, in that duel, Hamilton shot his gun in the air, but Aaron Burr shot and, and uh, hit uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, and his words when, when he was hit was, I'm dead. But he, he didn't. He did live for a couple days. And uh, when his wife was brought into him, he said to his wife, remember, my Eliza, you're a Christian. And then they tell about his last uh, minutes uh, or last hours, and the Reverend Benjamin Moore was the rector of Trinity Church. Now, they owned a pew at Trinity Church. That's the Episcopal Church in Wall Street, uh, where uh, his wife and he, they attended, that's where he was buried, by the way, is Trinity Church in New York. That's where he uh, had the funeral. And uh, George Washington's uh, funeral was just uh, one church away, uh, and Anyway, uh, the Episcopal bishop was there, and the and he and was then president of Columbia College, and the more uh, he balked at giving Hamilton the Holy Community Communion because they were wrestling with that in the in the Church of England that if you are in dueling, you shouldn't have uh, the the ministries of the church at that time. In desperation, Hamilton then turned to his dear friend, the Reverend John Mason a Presbyterian pastor, and he had the same dilemma. 
can I do this? Can I give the Lord's Supper to him? And when Mason entered the chamber, he took Hamilton's hand. The two men exchanged melancholy salutation and studied each other. And, uh, and then Mason tried to console Hamilton by saying that all men had sinned and were equal in the Lord's sight. And Hamilton answered, I perceive it to be so. Hamilton said, I am a sinner. I look to his mercy. Hamilton also stressed his hating of dueling. I used every expedient to avoid the interview, but I have found for some time past that my life must be exposed to that man. I went to the field determined not to take his life. As Mason told how Christ's blood would wash away his sins, Hamilton grasped his hand, rolled his eyes heavenward, and explained with fervor, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hamilton struggled for breath, promising that if he survived, he would repudiate dueling. I mean, this sounds humorous to us. He said, if I live, believe me, I am finished with dueling. I will repudiate it. And then uh, at that point, uh, the Bishop Moore, thank God, then uh, decided to uh, not refuse the dying man's last wish. This refusal was cruel and unjustifiable. Uh, and why deny a man the consolation and comforts of our holy religion in his last moments? And so uh, Moore said, I perceive you, uh, my unfortunate situation, and no doubt have made it acquaintance with the circumstance that led to it. Let my desire to receive the communion of your hands I hope you will not conceive there any impropriety in my request. That's what Hamilton said. It has for some time been my wish in my heart that it was my intention to take early opportunity of uniting myself to the church by the reception of this holy ordinance. Words, I've been planning to join your church, he said. <laughs> now, this is his dying words. I've been planning to join your church for some time. And Hamilton expressed his faith in God's mercy. And when more termed dueling a barbarous custom, Hamilton assured him, too, that he would renounce it if he lived. Lifting his hands beseechingly, he said, I have no ill will against Colonel Burr. Uh, uh, I, I met him with a fixed resolution to do him no harm. I forgive all that happened. At that point, Moore relented and gave the Holy Communion to Hamilton, who then lay back serenely and declared that he was happy. And that, I, I just wanted to read that because it showed the, uh, uh, the, there is an amazing quality to this man. And we owe such a debt to his, uh, I think the greatest debt is that in that very beginning of our republic, uh, the great leader, George Washington, had this young man by the way, Washington considered him like a son because Washington did not have any children. And he considered this young man like a son. And uh, they argued like father and son. And we owe such a debt to the, to the sanity of our republic and the greatness of our republic to two men, in my opinion. In my opinion, the two greatest men of the American founding fathers are George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. Wow. A little bit of material here. 
to digest. We're going to uh, take a break and be back with more of uh, Earl Palmer on the book Hamilton right after this. Kinling's Music, Earl Palmer Ministries, another great conversation, another great book that you want to read, Alexander Hamilton by Ron Cherno. In just a minute, we're going to get to your audience questions. I wanted to ask a couple of questions real quick, though. One of the things that you learn in this book is exactly what you've been saying, the, the role that Alexander Hamilton played really in so many aspects of our nation's life, militarily, the banking system, uh, the establishment of an army, a federalist kind of outlook. An amazing person, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that, that Cherno says was that Hamilton was the supreme double threat among the founding fathers, at once a thinker and a doer, a sparkling theoretician and a masterful executive. Why was he never president? They, they, they describe him in the book as the most brilliant of the founding fathers that was never president. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, he, he speculates on that as well. That it, it could have been the fact that he was so close to Washington and everyone knew he was so close to Washington that in a, in a sense, uh, it, um, it made it difficult for people to uh, just... Revel in him, and 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 trust him. Maybe a little bit of worry that maybe there'd be too much Washington influence, mm -hmm. because remember Washington is on the Federalist side, mm -hmm. and the next group of presidents that follow John Adams is a Federalist, but the next group of presidents, James Madison, of course, but but uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe are all in the uh, Republican side. They yeah. are the states. Yeah. And they were all slave owners with vast amounts of slaves. And they wanted to protect that. Now that is a dark part of our story. Yeah. That they, uh, they did not want anything to tamper with, with the, their... The, see, the slaves in the South gave them an advantage in counting even for voting. Yeah. They got votes for two-thirds votes for each slave even though they didn't get to, to vote. Right. But it gave the, the, the white owners a, a disproportionate power. And these, uh, I, I'm not saying that these were not earnest presidents, but Jefferson, uh, you know, Washington freed every one of his slaves in, in his will as, uh, when he ended his, his life, when he, when he knew he was gonna die. He freed every single slave, but not just freed them, but provided for stipends for every single one of them so that they could get going in their lives with work. Jefferson didn't do that. Monroe didn't do that. Uh, now, John Adams did not have slaves either because of his wife. Abigail was totally against slavery. Thank God for that. But uh, it is true that those forces to have the state's control and they were scared of, the, everybody adored Washington and Washington could have been president for the rest of his life, but he chose not to be. Yeah. And, but the minute he chose not to be, he doomed Alexander Hamilton. 
if you haven't read the book, please do, particularly if you're distressed at the state of our country right now and the yelling and screaming and, and personal ad hominem attacks, because you ain't seen nothing. The way the political climate was in these early days, first of all, you could write an anonymous article for a newspaper and attack your opponents, and they all did it. Jefferson wrote some scathing things about Hamilton, and Hamilton wrote some back. It was a really hostile political environment, and uh, a lot of enemies were made, as you said, and it, it made for a really, really... Well, Chernobyl just says that there was so much at stake that these people cared so deeply about yeah, the issues. But with but that they in did mind, make it personal. With often. that in mind, it is so astounding that at the Continental Congress, with Washington's strict rule, yeah. no no papers brought in, no papers exiting, we they wrote a pretty darn good constitution. Stood and, a little bit of the test of time so yeah, far. Yeah, it's, <laughs> they wrote a good one. Yeah. And we, we owe a debt, again, to the people that, that, that engineered that scenario. And yeah. that was mainly Alexander Hamilton and George Washington. Yeah. Who, and, Ale and, of course, Alexander Hamilton by himself could not have pulled that off. But George Washington, because, like uh, John Adams said, he had the gift of silence. <laughs> the, yeah. gift of, yeah, the gift of uh, when he was there, they respected him. Well, I've asked a question about his patriotism. I want to ask one question about his faith, and then let's get to the audience's questions. And it, it's, I think you laid out fairly how devout he was at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life. But it, it's certainly true that, that throughout most of his life and career, uh, well, you, you joked about it. I, I intended all along to become a member of your church, he says on his deathbed. You know, and, and so Chernow really raised some serious questions about, about Hamilton's faith. He says, like Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson, Hamilton fell under the sway of deism, which sought to substitute reason for revelation and dropped the notion of an active God who intervened in human affairs. He says, did Hamilton believe sincerely in religion, or was it just politically convenient? And then in another place it says, like Washington, Hamilton never talked about Christ and took refuge in vague references to providence or heaven. He did not seem to attend services with Elijah, who increasingly spoke the language of evangelical Christianity. He did not belong formally to a denomination. Now, you told us a bit about why he would do that, because of his mother. But then he said he showed no interest in liturgy, sectarian doctrine, or public prayer. Well, now, you see, uh, the, the trouble with that is Cherno is, is speaking about mid-Alexander Hamilton. Right. After the death of his son, Philip, his own son, John. Two years before he died. Two years before he died. Yeah. After the death of Philip, he, everything changed. That's when he wrote his amazing polemic against the atheism of Thomas Jefferson and the deism of Thomas Jefferson. Right. And said that that, and that's why I did read that one section, which is written at that time uh, for maybe one of his wife's Bible study groups. But uh, yes, in that mid period, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little tender hearted with regard to uh, the, 
the, the fact that George Washington referred to providence, divine providence. Yeah. That's a Jewish tradition. You yeah. know, the Jews never referred to God by name. Right. They always referred to kingdom of heaven, the, kingly, the, the kingdom right. of God. They used indirect language. And I, and I think it's understandable in political uh, world, they, they, used, they, they talked about the providence of God. They talked about the, uh, the, uh, the grand uh, goodness of, 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 of God's grace and stuff like that. But they wouldn't use, uh, they wouldn't use the, uh, pro, the personal pronouns to refer to God. Yeah. And that changes with, you heard the, the uh, speeches that yeah. are quoted by Cherno. Yesterday after church, someone said, well, as Earl Palmer says, this is my little old Orcas Island, says, as Earl Palmer says, the last chapter of the story has not yet been written. Yeah. That's one of your favorites, and that's true of Hamilton. I, I well, what to, you're saying yeah, yeah. is he was in the middle of his story. Let's not judge him by the middle of the story. Let's let the story you know, run its course, yeah. and in this case, yeah. it ended up in devout faith. Yeah, I, I never like to say the last chapter hasn't been written. I always say everyone's mid-story. Everyone is mid-story, even yeah. toward the end of your life. You're mid-story. Well, the story's your, not over. This That's guy quoted the, you wrong, then. Yeah. All right, let's get to some questions. Tony, what's your question tonight? You're going to hold it. Earl, great job. Thank you. Having listened to many of your sermons and your reference to the turbulent line that we all live on, I could not help but reflect on Alexander Hamilton's life as an illustration, an example of the turbulent line. And I connected him to King David in a way because of some of his picadillos and his uh, various actions in his life. Although he wasn't the king, but he represents, um, you know, the turbulent line along with redemption and forgiveness at the end of, of his life and really throughout his life, uh, a great man. And I just wonder if you could speak a bit on the turbulent line and how it is reflected in Alexander Hamilton's life. Yeah, you know, he says... Uh, the, his life described as a turbulent, on the turbulent line. I always liked that description of life better than, I had a guy used to always sign letters to me, onward and upward. And I used to say, uh, you know, I wish once in a while you'd say onward and upward and downward and upward and downward and upward. Uh, but rather than <laughs> always onward and upward, it's never onward and upward. It's always up and down. Uh, that's Lewis again. The closest we get to constancy is undulation. Okay, and live with it. And that undulation has a lot to do with what tempts you. If you're tempted by power, you're going to make some grievous mistakes with people and, with, and, and in politics too. Or if you're tempted sexually or if you're tempted in any way in your life uh, with just if you're tempted by flattery, and, you know, people in politics are often tempted by the flattery of others. And so then with that, you begin to lose some of your, you, you lose footing. You lose your integrity by, play, by playing to that. And that is part of the turbulent line. But, you know, the grace of God 
meets us in the midst of the turbulent line. And that's, what I, that's why I read the little speech he gave at the hurricane. Here's a 16-year-old boy kind of <laughs> describing what's going to be his life. He doesn't know it yet. But he's going to be in that, in that mixture. And, and he calls himself a worm. And then he calls himself, you should despise yourself. And all, that's the mixture. But on the other hand, uh, there is this wonderful discovery of grace in the midst of the turbulent line. Let's go to Susan next. What's your question, Susan? have a couple. Oh. One, you can only have one. I can only have yeah, one. Yeah, I'm sorry to be the mean guy. Okay, I was going to say in today's political system, he would be considered a Republican or a conservative because of his positions on trade and finance and federalism, um, moral leadism. And I think it's interesting, and I was, do you think it's interesting that, that theater or um, more liberals have embraced him as they have? considering his philosophy was much more conservative and Republican? Uh, well, you know, I don't think our present uh, tags work as well in the colonial period. Uh, I mean, the, the tags don't work. Uh, but the Federalist wants a strong... Uh, it's interesting. Like, jo Thomas Jefferson is considered in the... in the... In the, in the uh, uh, states side. He was from Virginia and he wanted strong states' rights and all the rest. And yet, Alexander Hamilton supported Thomas Jefferson against Aaron Burr because he did trust his sense of governance more and felt that he would govern better. He, he was an uneven man and a man that had certain problems that bothered him, but yet he felt he would govern uh, more steadily. And, but it is true that the issues that, that would be considered conservative or liberal are different in each age. And I think the key is to keep your balance and to, have, uh, to try to find a way of, 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 of moderation. And, you know, that's what he really was after. He really wanted moderation. If, for instance, he's the one that wanted chaplains in the army for men so they would have spiritual nourishment of the army guys. And he's the one that instituted that. And he, uh, you say, well, he's not that religious. He was scared of fanaticism. Fanaticism worried him the most. Uh, that would be, the, he would be most worried about a populist. You know, and that's why when, oh, by the way, he's the one that spotted the danger of Napoleon Bonaparte. Everybody was pro-French. Everybody was enamored with France. You can read David McCullough. He'll make that very clear. They were all enamored with France. And then this French Revolution was producing this strange populism. And the populism that finally featured itself in the, in the uh, well, let's say that the terribly reckless reign of Napoleon Bonaparte, Alexander Hamilton, and more than anybody else, saw that and said that's dangerous. He wanted moderation. He, uh, interestingly, also attacked the French Revolution because it was atheistic yeah, and, and anti-Christian, which is really interesting than what I was saying earlier about his mid-years. Yeah, but he, remember he, I pointed out that he, he was, a, somebody say he was enamored, like all the founding fathers were enamored with deism for a while. Uh, that's true, but but then after the death of his son Philip, it all changes in Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, Michael, your question. 
Okay, uh, my son says uh, Washington was uh, Aryan. And You're talking about Washington or Hamilton? Yeah, Washington. And I'm just wondering, uh, do you agree? Uh, and uh, can an Aryan believe in the atonement if Jesus is not God? And do they, they certainly they believe in miracles and they believe Jesus is from God. But uh, w would you agree with that assessment? Oh, I, I, I think that would be a kind of a, a imposition from our... Uh, religious debates now and the debates we've had in, 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 in current theology and put it upon uh, Washington. I think Washington in many ways is a very naive man in terms of faith. Uh, it's interesting if you go to his tomb, his tomb, the inscription he wanted on his tomb is, I am the resurrection and the life. It's from Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, not a, it's, not a, uh, uh, it's not a vague uh, providence uh, theme but the he and he's the one that chose the I've been to Mount Vernon and I've seen his tomb and he's the one that chose the scription and and the inscription on that is a statement from Jesus Christ no I, I think I think George Washington I love George Washington and I think he was a naive man in many ways and the best example is to see his uh, the uh, the rules of civic rules for civic behavior that he copied down as a boy, age 16, and that was all written by a Jesuit priest in France on its rules for behavior. And they, are, they became sort of the moral guideline of George Washington's life. Are those rules, and I, I have copies of the, I, I, by the way, I have some people here from Washington, D.C. Remember, I, I distributed those when I did a, Washington, a George Washington thing in Washington, D.C., that wonderful, the, uh, the, the, the uh, civil, civil uh, rules that he copied as a 16-year-old boy in his own handwriting, and the misspellings and everything are there. But he was, he was uh, isn't it interesting that Chernoff pays this great tribute to him? He had steadiness, he had a clear vision, he had a sense of moderation, and nobody that's been a leader of a great country has had moderation like George Washington. He walked away from power, and nobody does that. And, but no, Arian is not useful as a, as a way of describing him for me. We have time for one more question, and it's going to be Linda. What's your question, Linda? Um, Earl, you talked about, well, a lot about his, um, the positive attributes of um, Alexander Hamilton. You said he had three major weaknesses. And the first was the acute awareness from disrespect and the impact that that had on his life. I wasn't sure I heard what the other two were, but I'd be curious what you felt from the book the other two great weaknesses were and how they influenced You mean life. the weaknesses of, of Hamilton? Of, of Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, the weaknesses. I felt the three weaknesses, that, that and, and they're weaknesses that have a, a positive side too. One, he was very acutely sensitive to disrespect. And you know, I'm glad of that, but on the other hand, that can also do you in if you're just watching for it all the time. Because then you don't see some, sometimes the complex cultural reasons for somebody's show of disrespect. He could have handled Alex, uh, John Adams better if he had not been himself. So, um, so we got that one, but what about number two and three? The other, the, uh, his love of beautiful women, and oh. and also uh, the only man to ever especially have that beautiful women <laughs> in distress, 
And that yeah. and, and that's how he got taken advantage of by the Reynolds family. Yeah. That man and wife literally took him for a cleaning, and they, they set the whole thing up. But he fell for it. So he still gets blamed for it because he fell for that. Mm-hmm. And because she s- featured herself as in a very brutal marriage, and he was mean. Well, Alexander Hamilton's mother came from a brutal marriage and made him very sensitive to anybody in distress. And it made that, I'm not excusing him, but it could have been that. Now, his love for the sisters of his own wife, who were, they were beautiful young women, and they were absolutely adored him, and he adored them, but he adored the whole family. He loved the father and mother. He did marry the whole family. And that is not, again, a, a good thing to do when you uh, marry a family, <laughs> to marry the whole family. Uh, and in the movie, or not the movie, the musical loves to play that up because these beautiful sisters are in the picture all the time. Um, but to go, you brought up the Reynolds uh, pamphlet. They wrote a, what was it, 58-page confession of his infidelity that, that was heartbreaking for his wife because it was a public document. And, and people said this is the most embarrassing thing any public figure could ever do to write this long explanation of, in detail about his affair as a way of saying, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah. He's a complex I, guy. I, I think we should be grateful. Don't that recommend he, it. I'm, uh, be grateful. Remember, I say that there's a, a bad side, but there's a good side. And the good side is he knew how to say he was sorry. Yeah. But what a, was a lot of people then? don't know how to do that. And the third uh, was that he too much loved argument. Uh, and argument is, again, got a positive side because he wrote voluminously, and the Federalist Papers are a good example, but he wrote letters and he wrote, uh, uh, and he wrote these great speeches by George Washington and great things, but he also wrote very, we would say, uh, uh, there were acid edges to what he would write to other politicians. And since he, I think, was brighter than they were, that becomes a dark side. To, Let's just be taking thankful advantage. Twitter didn't exist when Hamilton was around. Let's just put it that way. What was that again? <laughs> Let's be thankful that Twitter didn't exist. Yeah, oh, when yeah. Hamilton, oh, man. If he, had he Twitter, probably would have used it. <laughs> He would have chatted, but no, you know, he would have written the, too long for Twitter because they, they limit you to a few characters. That's true. And he would not be limited to a few characters. He was very wordy. And, and, and but you know, uh, everybody is what they are. And he loved argument. And I guess we should be grateful that our, the Republic benefited basically by these arguments that they did have. I mean, John Adams, uh, you know, he makes fun of John Adams. But John Adams is a great man, too. And he's certainly a greater man than, uh, you know, than a lot of other people that, that could have been president. And, uh, and, and Alexander Hamilton wasn't president. But still, he left that mark because he was, uh, uh, he was with the great president. Would you join me in thanking Earl Palmer for another, another amazing, you know, when you've, when you've got a book this long, you're always interested in what Earl's going to pull out of it. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and those yellow stickies are the sections he chose. You notice there's a few pages that aren't marked. Uh, so you got to read the whole book. 
Uh, we've been talking about Ron Chernow's book, Alexander Hamilton. Please join us uh, next month for the Kindling's Muse when we talk about Joy Davidman. Short book, very short book. A very short book <laughs> next time. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.